Get ready to strap on your boots. I'm your host, Jason Sherman. This podcast is supported by one of the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange platforms, Bybit.com. Sign up today and get up to $1,000 in bonuses and coupons. You can also join a $400,000 trading competition along with other contests where you can win Bitcoin prizes and so much more. Just go to bybit.jasonsherman.org to sign up. That's bybit.jasonsherman.org. Today I'm talking to Art Bell, the founder of Comedy Central and the author of the book Constant Comedy with a long subtitle, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. Art, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Awesome. And uh, the first thing I want to know really before we get into the nitty gritty is how did you come up with this, the subtitle for your book? Because it is kind of like a, a long subtitle. Well, you know, constant comedy is about the fact that Comedy Central is all comedy all the time. And that's what we were facing as we put it together. And it was daunting. The subtitle, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor, I wanted to highlight the fact that it was really, really hard. I think people watching now, 30 years after we started it, may think that Comedy Central was shot out of a cannon, fully successful at the time. We almost failed in our first year. It was, it was touch and go the whole time. Speaking of that failure, uh, you know, if you could have a time machine and you can go back in time and, and correct one of your biggest mistakes that you made when starting Comedy Central, what would it be and how could you have avoided it? Well, I, I, you know, it's not so much a mistake, but it's like anything else. I look back and I say, you know, I could have done this two years earlier if I just pulled myself together enough and, and, and had enough faith in myself as a young, I wasn't even an executive then, as a young employee at HBO to really raise the flag and say, look, I have an idea. I think you guys are crazy not to do it, which is ultimately what I did two years later. When you say HBO, I, I, I realize I read about that, that you worked for HBO. How did you even get to work for HBO in the first place? Because there's a lot of people out there who are aspiring writers or aspiring actors or aspiring cameramen or whatever, and they just can't seem to break through the industry wall that exists to start working for a, a, a substantially large company like HBO. Well, you know, HBO at the time I went to work for them was kind of uh, the coolest place to work in the television business. They were new. They were Netflix of, uh, of the time. And they said they were going to change television. And it was, would be a very exciting place to work. I originally went to work at CBS when I wanted to get into the business, which was not going to change television at the time. That was like working at the post office of, uh, of the entertainment <laughs> industry. I think there were, I was nowhere near programming. There were 17 layers. I was working on financial stuff that nobody read. I really didn't like it very much, but a friend of mine had gone over to HBO from CBS and he called me up and he said, you know what? They are looking for somebody to do subscriber forecast. Didn't you do econometric forecasting before you went back to business school? And the answer was yes. I was an economist for three years in Washington, DC before I went back to business school. So he said, I think you're the only one in, in the entertainment business who could actually do this job. Went over, interviewed, bing, bang, boom. I got the job. And of course, I'm still miles away from programming. But that's how you get a job. Yeah, it sounds like a little bit of uh, the right place at the right time, a little bit of luck. Having a friend, a connection is usually a good way to get into a job like that. But it sounds like the planets aligned for you. You had all the right skills at the right time and the person got you in there. Now, was this always something you wanted to do? Like, did you always have 
working for, you know, TV and film and your DNA, or did you ever figure, uh, you know, think, think you were an entrepreneur and always feel like that was in your DNA as well? Or did these things kind of happen along the way? I have to say, I, I started uh, loving comedy when I was very, very young. I'm talking about seven, eight years old. Fascinated. Watching Ed Sullivan, which was, a, you know, the, the television show that highlighted comedians every Sunday at eight o'clock. Uh, and I thought comedians did great stuff. I stayed in love with comedy my whole life, right through school, right, right through college. When I got out of college, I, I had studied economics and I loved it. I thought economics was really cool. So despite the fact that I had this love of comedy and I film and all the other things that I loved, I said, all right, I'm going to be an economist. And I got a job as an economist, worked in Washington. It was a very, very good time for me. I worked with a lot of smart people and I felt very smart myself. Uh, and that, those days faded, but <laughs> there they were. And, um, and yeah, no, I, I, I really came to the conclusion that I didn't want to be a consultant or an economist my whole life after three years. And that's when I went to, back to business school. I call it changing the channel. Okay, let's do something different and see what happens. Yeah, I noticed you, you went to Wharton Business School. We have something in common there. I taught a course there. So that's, oh, no kind, kidding. Of, so that's kind of cool. We both have like a Wharton tie there. Yeah. Now, you mentioned it being you know, an economist a lot, but you also mentioned loving comedy. So to me, those are two completely different things. So when was the first moment that you realized, well, wait a minute, this comedy thing could actually work. And I have an idea that is not being done currently. And I want to go with it. What was that? What was the aha moment for you when you realized you could do this? Well, actually, it, it came at Wharton. I was uh, in my second year at Wharton. Wharton was doing something every year called the Wharton Follies which was a musical comedy review. And it was very highly produced because a lot of the people working on it at Wharton had come from the entertainment business. So we had producers and choreographers and all those guys gravitated to this project. Second year, I wrote uh, the entire show. I was in it. And it reminded me how much I loved comedy and writing comedy. And I said, wait a second, I'm pretty good at this. And that's when I started thinking, okay, wait a second. If I go into the television industry, there's an all news channel. There's an all sports channel. There's no all comedy channel. What the hell? I mean, I love comedy. Why not an all comedy network? And I kept my eye on it. As I went out looking for a job, I kept thinking, somebody's going to start one. It's just so obvious. But they didn't. But you were there before they were, and you, and you were the first. And that's really, uh, really impressive, you know. And, nice. uh, you know, one of the things that I, I think about when it comes to being an entrepreneur and, starting something new like that is when you have a mentor, because everybody has to have somebody to either bounce ideas off of or to get crucial information from early on. Did you have any mentors or anybody who kind of guided you along a certain path at any time that helped you uh, be who you are today, but also did they give you a piece of information that was crucial? Well, there are so many people who, helped me along the way and gave me information. And I, I frankly used a lot of my friends as sounding boards for this because a lot of my friends, some of my friends were comedy writers and in the comedy business and very successful uh, by the time I was doing this. And the one piece of information, the one advice that I got from a comedy writer who a friend of mine who was very successful, even by the time I was doing this, he said, don't look down. And what he meant by that is, you know, you're going to be doing things, getting this channel started that you never thought you could do. 
and that where failure is just such an unpleasant option. He said, if you look down and start thinking about it too much, you're going to mess up. And that was right. And that was absolutely right. So always look forward, always look ahead. That's right. That's right. Don't, don't think about the consequences of not, you know, not keeping your footing and falling thousands of feet to your demise. And it goes without saying, too, a failure and learning go hand in hand. So when someone says, well, I failed, I always say, well, I learned something and I know what not to do the next time. So that was probably something really important for you, especially when starting something as daunting and as kind of groundbreaking as Comedy Central was at the time. It must have been super challenging to the point where you hit a couple of obstacles, you hit a couple of walls, and there might have even been a day or two where you wanted to completely give up and throw in the towel. What were some of those days like? What was the biggest day where you're like, I just, I can't do this anymore? And what made you get through it? What were the things that pushed you forward? It's a good question. Um, I hit lots of obstacles before, during, and after. I have to say that. Um, And when I say before, when I first pitched the comedy channel 24-hour comedy channel idea to hbo i went to the head of programming at hbo her name was bridget and that was a big deal for me because i was not very high up in the organization to say the least i had no programming experience she did give me an appointment i walked in i said hey bridget i really think hbo should do a 24-hour all comedy network and she said stop right there that is the worst idea i've ever heard (laughs) so she proceeded to tell me that, you know, no comedians would want to be on it. And there's plenty of comedy on television. HBO does comedy. You know, you don't know anything about television. And she sent me packing, you know, it was a 10 minute meeting. And I was, as you can imagine, having, a, you know, a big bucket of ice cold water thrown on me, devastated. And I walked out of her office and I was walking back to my office. And I said, you know what, she's wrong. And that was it. I I just said, I will find a way to keep going because as I said, my conviction was that there would be a comedy network in the world. Was it going to be me doing it or somebody else? And I wanted it to be me by that point. You must've worked with some amazing people when you started the network. I mean, were there any um, actors or comedians that kind of really kind of sparked some energy into the network off like right off the bat? Because when you have a network like that, you must need the right content and the right people working with you to make it kind of really popular, right? Absolutely. And guess what? We didn't know what the right content or the right people was. Oh, wow. We just, you know, you have to remember the idea of a 24 hour comedy network. It's a simple, direct, high, high uh, concept uh, idea. Okay. What are you going to put on it? Well, you can put all sitcoms, you can put all short form comedy, you can put all stand up comedians, you can do a mix, you can have young people, you can have old people. I mean, you know, you're constantly making programming choices with a new network. You haven't defined yourself yet. But I'll tell you one story that I, that I, I think really, really set us up and, and, and convinced me that this project was not only going to be successful, but it was going to be brilliantly successful. It was before we launched. The head writer, who was a guy named Eddie Gorodetsky, very funny guy, a little crazy, uh, said, you know, we, he talked kind of like that. We got to find a show. We got to make a show where it's us watching television and commenting on it, making jokes, because that's what comedians do. It's a watch us watch show. So we all said, okay, that sounds like a good idea. We sat down to do it. And then it must have been, I, I always think of it as three days later. It could have been a week later. In the mail comes a cassette tape. 
And the cassette is Mystery Science Theater 3000. And these guys were doing it in Minneapolis for fun. You know, they couldn't put it on. And we were so excited. We were so excited. And I personally was so excited. And here's why. Because if we weren't there, if there was going to be no comedy network, where would that show have gone? It wasn't going to go on CBS, let me tell you, not in those days. Or HBO, even, even HBO, which was doing innovative stuff, wasn't going to go there. So thank goodness we had a comedy network. And I knew this would be a place for innovative comedy. Because yeah, that, that shows one of those rare gems that, like you said, if it hadn't been on there, it might have been lost forever. Or maybe eventually it would have been online as a web series. But so many people have loved that show. And it's been kind of copied so many times throughout the years so, you know, it's obviously one of those generational series that really made an impact. And so there was a moment when Comedy Central became successful. Like you, you got the content, you got the programmers, you got everybody on board and, you know, the content was doing really well and you decided to leave at that point. What was the decision? And, you know, why did you make that decision? I'm just curious because I, I would like to know. Well, it came down to the following two words, you're fired, which is the end of my book. Um, so now you don't have to read it, I guess. But uh, <laughs> it's a great story yeah. until then. What happened is um, we, I was there for about eight years and put the whole place together uh, along with other people. I, mean, I don't want to say I did it all myself. Far from it put the place together. And we went through a merger before then. You didn't even mention that, but Comedy Channel, which was started by HBO, got competition from Ha, which was started by MTV because they didn't want us to take the, the comedy space. At the end of one year, they closed both channels and merged them. And they said to me, Art, put the channels together, figure out what it is, and, and you're done. Anyway, so years later, they fired my boss, who was the president of uh, comedy, and they brought in somebody else. And then somebody else said to me, you know what? You're a great executive. You got your fingerprints all over this place. I can't keep you here. And there it was. Why? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Well, I think the, you know, one thing you got to know about the entertainment tel uh, business, which you probably do know, actually, uh, because I know you have some association with it, um, is that people like to do things their own way, especially in creative situations. So there I was having put together and spent eight years doing programming, marketing, you know, originally some financial stuff. I mean, I was all over that network. I helped define what the brand was and would become. New management comes in. What's the first thing new management says? Everybody's well, how are we going to do this differently to yeah. make it better? So I get to keep my job for eight years. So that's what it was. And, and, you know, again, no disrespect to the new management. They did a great job. Um, but that's that one of the things I wanted to point out in my book is that's life in corporations. You know, you're working for somebody else. Ultimately, this is something that I'm going to be asking for the whole film community out there. Cause as an independent filmmaker and uh, I have family in Europe and family here in the States who are, we're all filmmakers. We've made, feature length movies that have screened in movie theaters and things like that. We know how difficult it is to not only produce a movie, but to distribute it and to get funding for it, to get people to watch it, to market it, to distribute it, everything. What are some of the, if you had three top things you could tell a fledgling, you know, uh, indie filmmaker on how they can get a movie made, produced, you know, distributed, what would you tell them? to in order to get it out there because it's it's so hard nowadays for people to get like a hollywood 
studio to to back them of course you need to have like really famous actors right to to to, to say okay to the script for example or a famous director so any advice you can give these people would be great you know i had a boss who said anybody who can get a movie made uh is a genius and the reason is because it's hard as you point out it's really really hard i mean some of the best movies ever chinatown i think that script was floating floating around Hollywood for 10 years before anybody took it seriously. And you think, okay, wait a second. That's the, that's one of the top 10 films ever made. So yes, it's very difficult. I've had friends who've made um, indie movies and the process was difficult for them, uh, especially since they had to find funding and they had to provide some of their own funding and getting distribution was difficult. You get it out to the festivals, which is a good place to start on these things, even before it's completely finished. You can get, you can get things out. HBO was a great place to go because they provided finishing money. Uh, and I pre- presume Netflix is, is offering the same kind of opportunity. I will say this, as opposed to years ago, Netflix and Amazon, my gosh, they're spending so much money on programming. You know, just wave your arms enough and they, they will notice what you're doing. Um, whether they make your movie or not, or whether they, they buy your movie or not is another story, but they are not afraid of spending money on good programming. I think at the end of the day, it's about perseverance. I mean, so much in the industry is about, hey, you want to be an actor? You got to hang in there through a lot of auditions. You want to be an executive? You got to get fired a couple of times. You know, all of those things. It's about not folding when the going gets tough. And the going gets tough very often in the film business, that's for sure. <laughs> yes. But there has, there has to be some fun moments too. So you, you must have had some fun when working at Comedy Central. What were some of the perks and advantages and like the fun times that you had when you worked there? We had endless fun. Are you kidding? I mean, the, the whole idea that I was standing around watching some of the, not only some of the funniest people work, but some of the most creative people in, in – um, on-air promotion, where we had to define what the channel was and we had to be funny in marketing. You know, I learned early on, here's a marketing tip. If you're going to sell something that's funny, like a comedy network, or in my case, a comedy book right now, you got to, you got to be funny. You can't convince people you're going to be funny with your ad. uh, If you don't, you know, if you don't show them, you can be funny. So I loved watching that stuff happen. Great moments. I mean, I'll tell you something, live television is something that, Everybody should experience <laughs> because anything can happen and usually does. And I tell a couple of stories about live television going horrifyingly wrong in the book um, and those uh, wrong, but funny. Um, but, you know, again, working with Al Franken when he was live commenting on the president's state of the union in 1992, that was the first time anybody did that. Wow. Uh, and he was terrific, but he got a little nervous before he went on. And I tell that story and you just, you know, you have to imagine it's, it's almost like you have to get scared to be uh, unscared and laugh your brains out. And that's, you know, that's peekaboo for little kids right off the bat, you know, where's mom? There she is. And, and that difference is why the kid starts laughing. And that's comedy in a nutshell. You disarm people first and then you make them laugh. I've understood that comedy is one of the hardest things to do right? Comedy is one of the hardest things to write about. Comedy is one of the hardest things, like, for example, as a screenwriter, it's really difficult. It's easier to write a drama, right? So what kind of things did you notice from the writers there that they would go through and having to come up with the comedic elements to the shows? Well, I think that, I think, first of all, let's, let's 
be honest, writing is hard to write. I mean, writing is, is it's a creative act. The people who do it well are brilliant. Uh, and a lot of people try. But it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. Comedy, now you're, you're starting to dissect it. There's, if you look at, take a sitcom as an example, because I think people, everybody knows about sitcoms. There are funny lines in it. There are also funny situations in it. That's hence the name sitcom, which would work equally well in a drama, some of those situations, and which certainly have dramatic elements. Sitcoms have dramatic storylines, story arcs. They have characters like everybody else, but they have situations that are going to lend themselves to comedy. And that's the difference between just, you know, punching up a script with throwing some funny lines in and building a comedy that has a basis, a premise that is in and of itself funny. You go back to the I Love Lucy show, you know, which I'm sure everybody's seen at least one in their life by now. And if you haven't, go, te- go check it out. Because, you know, Lucy, the, the, the basic drama was, okay, Lucy's going to get into Ricky's business and she's going to do it by disguising herself and Ethel and they're going to sneak on and Ricky's not going to notice who they are. And of course, how ridiculous is that as a situation? Because it's Ricky's wife. He knows who they are. So every time it happens, they say, oh, so Ricky says, I know who they are, but I'm not going to let on because now I'm going to have some fun with them. That is a basic comedy setup in a sitcom. It's been used a billion times in situation comedies. It's been used a billion times in movies, you know, switching bodies, you know, all kinds of stuff that, that, that are basic comedy setups that get written around. I will say one more thing. Some people are funny. I mentioned the head writer, uh, Eddie Gordetsky. You sit down with Eddie Gordetsky, you're going to laugh within 15 seconds and you may not stop for a half an hour. He is a naturally funny guy. He writes funny. He talks funny. Everything about him is funny. He's not going to write a drama. Okay. That's awesome. And I'm hoping that people out there listening, grab a copy of your book. Uh, Where can they get your book? And are there any uh, websites or social media handles that they should be looking for to get in contact with you? Oh, yeah. My book is available wherever fine books are sold, you know, your local bookstores, to the extent they're open, uh, and they will be opening. Also, Amazon.com, of course, and any of the other online booksellers sell my book in hardcover and downloadable form. And if you want to know more about me and my book, which I'm sure everybody's saying, how do I get to find out? Who is this guy, Art Bell? I want to learn about him. Um, You can go to artbell.com writer.com. And I have stuff about my book. I have an interview with myself. I have some of my other writing because I write a lot of stuff. Uh, So it might be a good place to go. And I encourage you to do that. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. People get in touch with me all the time who've read the book or want some help with something. I'd like to do that. And I will say one other thing. If somebody buys, somebody in, uh, in your audience buys a hardcover book and wants me to sign it, of course, I can't come to your house, what with the pandemic and all and travel expenses. But I will send you, um, if you send me your address, I'll send you a signed book plate that you can paste in. Awesome. Thank you. And one last question. Top three stand-up comedians, in your opinion, of all time? And that's... that's, Come um, on. You can do it. Well, it's easy. Number one is Richard Pryor, who I saw when I was a a kid. And and, uh, brilliant from start to finish. Remade himself several thousand times. And like the guy I was just talking about, the head writer... You couldn't have a conversation with him without laughing. Um, second, you know, now, now it gets to be a matter of taste. And uh, I know this may be politically incorrect. Woody Allen was a great stand-up comic. He had a great persona. He brought in a lot of great stuff um, and, you know, went on to be a great, a great filmmaker. The third one may surprise you. I would say Albert Brooks. 
is uh, is a favorite. Now, a lot of people know Albert Brooks from his movies, which are brilliant. You got to listen to his stand-up comedy when he was younger. He was just beyond belief, the inventiveness of his stuff. He does a routine about... Uh, it's decided that the United States is going to get a new national anthem. So they're going to have tryouts. Anybody who wants to audition theirs can come and audition for a national anthem. It's a riot. It's just unbelievably funny. So those are my three. That's funny. And I would have thought you might've said George Carlin or maybe Eddie Murphy or something like that. Don't torture me like that. I mean, you ask for for three, you're going to get three. And then now you're going to say, well, why not Carlin? Of course, Carlin. Why not Robert Klein? I I love Robert Klein. Why why not? Okay. But you're not going to play that game. I know you're not. All right. Better than that. I appreciate it. I appreciate you coming to my show. This was fantastic. And I'm, I'm hoping that a lot of people enjoyed listening to your stories and they can catch it more in your book. So thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate being on. And we'll see everybody in next week's episode. Thanks for listening. If you learned something in today's episode, please subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. You can learn more about me at jasonsherman.org. Don't forget to pick up a copy of my book, also called Strap on Your Boots, on Amazon. And if you want to dive even deeper into the world of entrepreneurship, I suggest you sign up for my course called Startup Essentials on udemy.com. Also, you can support this podcast by leaving me a positive review and also by visiting patreon.com slash strap on your boots to become a member and get bonus material. See you in next week's episode.